welcome to Podship Perth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. There's something about pie that just makes me smile. It just tastes so damn good. And pie reminds me of all the good times from birthdays, Christmas, Hanukkah, and all the celebrations in between. Our family would go down to 25th and Mission Street in San Francisco to get our favorite pies, which started with banana cream pie when the kids were young and now is firmly in the blackberry peach pear family of crumbles. It makes it even more special that one of the co-founders of Mission Pie, Karen Heisler, used to work for EPA, and so over the years, we became friends. When Karen phoned me a few weeks ago to let me know that Mission Pie was closing forever on September 1st, I was completely taken back. This week, we talked to Karen about how Mission Pie was created, the factors that led to its closure, and the love and hope that come from even the most difficult of life's changes. I start with Karen at her store, which is still open for another month, looking at the pies on offer today. Okay, we've got the vegan pie, the walnut. I'm not, I know you were like a big fan of the walnut pie. Peach blackberry. Now that is my perennial favorite. Right, you like the, um, wow, that was good that I figured that out yeah. last week. You like the pies with the crumb top, yeah. I know. I like the. I like our double crust pies because I really love the the pie dough that we make, which is a, a kind of classic American pie dough. It's all butter. That peach one just <laughs> looks so good. It's yeah, crazy. It's, and yeah. then mixed berry. If, if you don't have peach blackberry or pear blackberry, berry, yeah. that's the one. One of the things that's great about lots of people together around pie is that you get to go places you wouldn't have gone otherwise. And rhubarb. Our, our collective, you and I both, like, rhubarbs, yeah. oh my God. Out of season, and for some reason, even though it's not in, you know why there isn't rhubarb in California? Or there isn't much? is because the cost of land is so high here. It takes about three years for rhubarb to be established as a commercial crop, where you can really go at it. If you're going to spend three years with, uh, you know, not drawing revenue off a piece of land, you're going to put in fruit trees or nuts or something that you, that you can recover that investment with. And rhubarb is just not a high enough value crop. So, you know, for the first few years, I was like, oh, it's so embarrassing. We can't source local rhubarb. But when I came to realize, like, no, it's just it doesn't fit in the agricultural economics of the state. And so we get rhubarb from Oregon. And it's just the way it is. You know, I mean, like there are certain things you can't change and you can't fault somebody for not wanting to grow something that doesn't allow them to make a decent living. Okay, let's eat some. Okay. Did you get a plum? Mm. How's it? So good. Really tart. Yeah, right? I love it. Mm. It does taste like rhubarb. A little bit. Plum, I think, might be my second favorite. Plum? I have really good memories of... Is it Greek? Like, is this Victoria plum? Um, these... They're probably not called Victoria Plum no, in America. No, I don't. Is that what you grew up with? Yeah. They're no, like these small. are Santa Rosas, ah. which just happened to be my favorite plum. I think because that's what I encountered when I was a kid. So but there's I, a lot of nostalgia in pie. I think there is for a lot of people. 
you know, the highest compliment is when people say, and usually they whisper it because they don't want the spirit of their grandmother to hear that, that we've made a pie that rivals their grandmother's or something. That's always like, wow, that's, you know, what do you say? That's lovely. And now I have a lot of nostalgia for mission pie already. Yeah, what is nostalgia doing for us in this time, though, do you think? I, I think it's generally dangerous, but it's a comfortable place. I mean, it, it's a place of remembering how something was to help you maybe think about where you are now. But generally, for me, it's, it's unhealthy because rather than looking forward, it's, it's looking backwards. And if we spend too much time looking backwards, we don't really move forward. Right. I guess at its best, it can motivate us to reach forward with the things that we value with us and to try to create in that ideal, providing that those are values that really, you know, line up with what our responsibilities are. Next, we walk somewhere quiet to talk. Where are we? We're in the basement of Mission Pie. So tell us about life before Mission Pie. You actually started with an organic farm. It's an amazing farm in Northern California that was the first community-supported agriculture farm in California. It's called Live Power Community Farm. I can say I sort of cut my teeth on ecological agriculture in that context. One of the unique things about this CSA is that it's a very actively involved membership. In other words, the food comes from the farm to the city, not sorted into individual shares, and the community takes responsibility for the division of, you know, the boxes of produce and delivery to one another. So there was a lot of involvement in the organism of the farm, and I was deeply engaged in the urban part of that. I'm, like, very honestly and comfortably an urban person with a profound interest in how good food happens. And then you somehow made your way into the belly of the federal government, um with a job regulating pesticides. How did that come about? I just had the good fortune of somebody from EPA coming to one of my classes, an environmental law class, and she spoke with such passion, I realized yet another embarrassment that I had always held a pretty negative opinion of government uh, work. And I, I thought, oh, this woman sounds very creative and very engaged and very committed, and I relate to that. And I contacted that person and asked if I could work as an intern at the ripe age of 30. And, and that was how I ended up going to the EPA. So how long were you at EPA? I think all told I was at EPA 15 years. It was a supportive environment. And more importantly, it gave me an, an enormous opportunity to learn. So how were you spending most of your day at EPA? Were you at on farms or what what were you doing? Most of the time was very much spent in a cubicle on the 18th floor of the office. I was in the role of being a liaison working with the state of California, one of the most powerful agricultural economies in the world and one of the most dynamic and challenging agricultural systems that I can think of. It was a real 
privileged to be able to do that. I think we got some important things done. The two areas of activity of policy that I ended up specializing in were pesticide drift, so the movement of pesticides when they're applied and after they're applied onto parts of the landscape where they weren't intended to land or sometimes people directly. That continues to this day to be something that I care a lot about. I think in this country, we grow up believing, maybe not anymore, but at my time, we grew up believing that our government was working in our best interest and uh, had our health and welfare in mind. We have regulatory systems that are in the context of cultural systems that empower some and disempower others. And I think some of what I am proudest of from my time at EPA, which progressed from a regulatory program to a, a much more incentive-based program for the second half of the time that I was there. My practices began to focus more and more on ensuring that a, a more representative group of impacted and participating individuals was in every discussion. I found that more and more I was trying to just ensure that a balance of voices were at the table and were really taken seriously. And it was that same thing that motivated me to leave and to start a pie shop, in a sense. My awareness and discomfort with how far I was from the ground, being very far from the community that I was regulating, and very far from where the impacts of this industry were being felt the most. Emotionally, like, were you at the end of your rope at EPA when you decided to start Mission Pie? What were you feeling? I felt impatient. I mean, one of the hard things for me about working in the world of policy was that I, I would lose a sense of whether I, I was actually accomplishing anything. I think it's possible that we all have felt that way in those jobs. It's hard to sometimes go home feeling like, oh, I did this today, because everything that gets done takes a really, really long time and involves many, many people. And I do obviously drift into my head a lot. So I think part of my wanting to step out had to do with seeking balance, where I would have a little bit more of a sense of the tangibility and the results of my effort. I was always super jealous of you. I, I was like, how did Karen leave EPA and do what I've always wanted. I mean, I love pies, I love mm -hmm. cooking, and it just seemed like you were my hero. I just couldn't believe that you'd done it, and it, it kind of felt like escape from Alcatraz. You managed to do something remarkable. I would encounter that response a lot from not just colleagues at EPA, but in other places. It was kind of calculated, and it was a huge risk. I made a decision within a week. I would not recommend that for everybody. I mean, it's, it, was, it was a really big risk. I did that when my daughter was in high school. It wasn't the kindest thing. I really upset our personal environment to follow a dream. But before there was a Mission Pie, right, you had co-founded a farm in Pescadero called Pie Ranch. Um, so what, what was that experience like? During the early years of that, it was, it was gratifying, but I also realized I had kind of taken my feet away from where I really live in an urban environment, and what I really wanted to be doing was reaching more people and bringing more people to the table to understand, again, what makes good food good. And I started imagining what would something like that 
in an urban context look like and how do we invite people to the table. And I think my tip from the public sector into the private sector of running a food business really it was an epiphany of sorts that I had as I was watching the very money that I was responsible for doling out through government grants, through, through these incentive programs to sort of motivate agricultural producers into new habits that would be more environmentally and socially sustainable. And I suddenly realized that I had been completely indoctrinated growing up in the Bay Area into the belief that the private sector is the source of all evil and the public sector, whether you know the charitable organizations or government, is, is where all repair is going to happen. I had a, a crisis around that, realizing that, one, that's really inefficient to allow a bunch of bad stuff to happen and then come in and correct it. So it just looked to me like a toilet bowl that we were going to go down if we kept believing that. And I, that motivated me to try to be part of demonstrating that businesses can be, both be profitable and good and sources of good in their communities. But there are a lot of people already doing that, but it was an enlightenment for me. And it became the, the really compelling driving force. And I have to credit my wife and business partner, Kristen Rubin, for helping me to open my eyes to that in a very gentle, demonstrated way. She had uh, more experience running a business, and I, I learned a lot of Mission Pie's business ethics really were the result of her quiet demonstration and insistence around the commitments that we made from the, the get-go around how we would source food ingredients and how we would take care of the people that worked with us and how we would be ambitious in our goals and where we would compromise. I have really come to appreciate and believe in enterprise that is oriented toward justice and fairness and sort of right relationship with a community. And I think it what it really drives me, if we don't call on ourselves to be fair and just in the way that we conduct our transactions as businesses, as humans, we, we are going to go down. We can't like have a, a split society where some of the people are just getting away with stuff and the others are the enforcers. And in fact, that's the direction we've drifted and that we're going fast and hard and it freaks me out every day. I came into Mission Pie with a very, very strong motivation for sharing values about ecological agriculture and how we source food and what it means to be an individual in this society spending money this way. What are we reinforcing? What are we not calling forth? If we just all knew a little more about the implications of those exchanges, we could make more of the right thing happen. And I've lately been really aware of the economic and social climate crisis that we are having just in terms of how we are asking people to spend their personal energies and in what way we are willing to compensate them and provide economically safe future. And these things are obviously not separable, but there's a, a way in which we're really, really quickly unraveling the protections that we have established around work, safety, 
exploitation or not, human dignity in the workplace, and we're, we're undoing those protections that were built during the last century as quickly as we are damaging our physical environment. So when you think about you've got all these environmental, sustainability, labor, um, equity, justice goals that you've established, and, and then you create a pie shop, how do you balance all that with what customers want, which is an amazing tasting pie. I mean, were those values really explicit throughout the the mission pie story, or how did you integrate those things? The criticisms that the environmental movement and the food movement that have been levied at those movements, especially in their early years about being exclusive and inaccessible are really important. You know, we have conversations with customers all the time that enable us to talk about this. Those are the moments I live for, when somebody asks for something and we don't do it or we don't have it. Because we're really bad in our society at coping with, like, absolute limits. Do you think the closing of Mission Pie reflects, like, a bigger change in San Francisco, one where instant gratification takes precedence over, well, I guess everything? We just want to, you know, we've really lulled ourselves into thinking we can have anything we want any time we want. It's not good for us. We lose awareness and consideration when we have that sort of limitless expectation. I think it, it contributes very much to some of the crises that we're facing now. So when somebody asks us for cherry pie, which often will happen around Washington's birthday, then we can have a talk both about seasonality in food, but more significantly about the fact that we, we actually never make a cherry pie at Mission Pie because it's, a, it's both a high cost and very perishable fruit. So a lot of money at, at, you know, to, to buy cherries, a certain amount of money lost in the waste that will happen, and then an enormous amount of labor to take all the pits out, and that would result in a pie that is priced, you know, in the 40 to $50 range, which is not where we want to be located because then we're limiting access to this conversation. So as I said, my favorite pie um, at this time of year is blackberry and plum, um, which we ate some of already. It was incredible. Where, where do you get that fruit from? We sort of believe in sustained relationships. So the plums in this pie are from Blossom Bluff, and the blackberries are grown by Urena Farms. And both are folks that we have been sourcing from for years, really sort of key to sustaining those relationships. We look for businesses that share a lot of the same values about stewardship, both of the environment and of their communities. Our foods are not heavily processed and as a consequence are kind of like short shelf life things, which is why wholesale has never been a good fit. So, you know, summer is a, an amazing time. The, the Often the fruit that's going in a pie today was picked yesterday or the day before. So that must make closing that much harder. How are you feeling about this end to this incredible project. It feels very, very much like watching a, a, a living being grow up and travel through a healthy life and then be being at a point of potential decline, and we don't want to do that. 
So when we reached that decision, the first people we talked to were our internal community, the people who work here. The second layer was the people that we buy from, and particularly anybody who might be doing crop planning now. The last time we met, you were talking about your daughter coming back and potentially taking over the business. Mm -hmm. And so she was just kind of mentally gearing up for that. So Mm -hmm. that that must have also been shocking for her. Two years ago, I had a lot of optimism that we would be able to, together with her, sort of recast the business in a way that would, would be able to sort of have a second generation. I think Kristen and I were both feeling receptive to the idea of some change. And I think Jesse was feeling that, you know, the same optimism. So... What changed? The story of what's happened here is that the cost of living is going up with such a pace in the Bay Area that we are less and less an area that draws people who want to work in low-paying low service jobs, even if it's in a realm that they love, like food. It's just less and less feasible to come here to do that. And because we have a commitment to do well by the people that work at Mission Pie, we have, been, we have tried always to be ambitious, both in terms of compensation and benefits. And even at our most ambitious, the business can only generate as much revenue as it can generate. Of course, you know, we keep trying to be leaner and meaner and whatever, and we don't want to just jack up the prices because then we lose the very intrinsic value of being an accessibly priced place. I thought, you know, we'll get on the delivery bandwagon or we'll start a wholesale thing or we'll co-pack a product and sell Mission Pie pot pie in the supermarkets. But each thing we looked at and evaluated, we realized like, oh, you know, if we do wholesale, we have to like reinvent the product line so that it has a longer shelf life. And that's a, an entirely different kind of product. Same with a frozen pot pie in the market. Same and the delivery thing. Did you look at collaborating with all those cars that jam up the streets in San Francisco, I, you know, but also deliver food? We're not willing to be collaborators with a business model that is built on exploiting workers by classifying them as contractors when they should be classified as employees. Just can't do it. Sorry. You know, and besides, you take these commissions that are out of scale with what businesses like this can generate unless we artificially inflate our prices. So anybody who comes and sits down for a slice here is paying for that somebody else's delivery. The fact that you're not able to continue to make pie, I mean, what what does that say about our larger world? This is a changing business climate, a changing economic climate that isn't aligning with pie. If it's not evident already in this conversation, I do have a tendency to, to go a little dark. We are using so many resources to have so many choices. We have to commit to being more mindful of the impacts of what we do and being willing to achieve our joys through other means. We're at a a sort of fever pitch of people being able to all the time get all their food made by other people. I think it's sort of at this weird extreme. It just seems to be going more and more in that direction. All this delivery, what's happening with all that packaging? We've got to go lighter instead of heavier. And I feel like we're in this, you know, People are going to come up with new ways 
to access joy. It might require certain new kinds of self-sufficiency, but I think we see that happening. There's a return of spirit, self-determination and creation. Things have cycles, they have emergences and declines and periods of invisibility or death. And there is then a return of life. I mean, I, that's the source of my... I don't know if I can call it optimism, but that's the source That's the source of my faith. The fact that you're closing in a month just feels more dire to me because you've done everything the way that it should be done. And so a business like yours that can't sustain itself while very, very unsustainable businesses are going forward, it just it feels really depressing. Yeah, but you know what doesn't feel depressing, though, is like the vitality that is in our staff community. I, I've been kind of blown away by the beauty of this time. People, It's almost like, you know, sometimes it's easier to, to have that spirit of like strong to the end when you, when you can see the end point. We all are in an experience together, and it's quite intimate. It's a time of heightened reflection and and a real sense of appreciation of the bonds. People are like really loving each other here right now. And there, it felt to me a couple of weeks ago like, wow, this is no longer just a job. My heart is partly broken in terms of not being able to ma- manifest this dream of turning this over to Jesse. But that doesn't mean that nothing can exist. It just means that the right confluence of factors has to come together in the right time and place. If I were talking to somebody now about like wanting to create something like this, I probably would encourage them to go simpler and smaller. You've been married to your business partner and I mean, in some ways, does this feel freeing? I mean, are you now going to be able to have a different relationship with Kristen than you have had for the last 12 years? Yeah, I think think we're both looking forward to discovering what that is because we've only known each other in this context. So, you know, we sometimes play a game of uh, asking each other what we did today, even when we've spent the day at work together. It's so important to have... You know, a lot of the time that we spend at work together, we're actually doing very different things, and we can go for several hours without interacting, and that's probably nice for her. (laughs) um, But being able to cultivate a whole new piece of a relationship, that's, you know, after a decade that's or more, that's fun. How did politicians react? I mean, it seems like a sign of failure when a community-run justice, labor, and environment-focused place that everyone loves is closing because the city no longer has the the elements that would allow a business like this to survive. I would say I don't think that our leadership has often demonstrated much understanding of the, the principles of business. I think a lot of our leaders come into political leadership through other pathways. A number of us who have been trying to run businesses well have felt frustration about our our words, our cautions falling on deaf ears. And so it feels, you know, painful a little bit to have then people 
come rushing in with emails or phone calls and like, what can we do? What can we do? And I, I don't believe in businesses being saved. That's not appealing to me because it doesn't speak of sustainability. I think San Francisco has a lot to learn and is going to see a lot of loss in terms of the, you know, how it hosts creativity and business during this time. My EPA experience where I was really harsh in my mind and sometimes verbally with the in industry that I was regulating and I, I, I have some remorse and guilt about that. It's been really, really interesting to be on the flip side of that, to be sort of in what is fundamentally the regulated community of a city. So given that realization about what it means to be regulated, do you think that governments will, you know, that this will be a wake-up call to them in terms of helping small businesses? You know, honestly, right now, I don't have a lot of optimism about that, but, but sometimes it takes a lot of loss for us to wake up. You know, there's been a little bit of, like, shock in the community, I think, from this closure, more than a little bit. I think we represent some ideal so much that even though I don't mean this in a, with false humility, at the end of the day, we're kind of just another food business. We just have some kind of high standards about certain things. But we're not a radical form. We're not a cooperative. We're just like a straight-up S-corp. I think it's valuable for people to understand that. Any business that you walk into, probably there's a lot of effort there. You know, it's worthy of some respect. As you enter the last month of Mission Pie, um, what is it that strikes you the most about this experience? One thing that I've been struck by is how much love is coming forward. It's, it's really been amazing. It's been a really interesting thing just to watch people's loss processes. If there's anything that is making this period memorable and profound. It's the extent to which the love is winning, which is what we all like to say in moments, but like it's actually really true. And I'm amazed at the number of people that have the capacity to convey that from a place of real selflessness, like while holding their own loss, just like, I just want to say thank you for what this has been. I mean, you think you could never have too much of that, but, you know, it's it's these very enormous generosities coming at us also. And if anybody out there is among those that have been doing that, I thank you in a way that I don't really have the words for. Thank you so much, Karen, for sharing your stories with me today. Karen and her partner, Kristen Rubin, manifested a dream of creating a place where so many of us went to enjoy delicious food. And in large part, that was because environmental, labor, equity, and fairness goals were baked into the recipes. As I leave Mission Pie today for the last time, I take a huge amount of comfort in the community that has come together to show that this journey isn't just about the loss of a place we hold dear, but rather how we transition with love to the next adventure. In the next episode of Podship Earth, we talk about the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey in Houston, Texas, which was used as an opening for oil companies to start building new plastic-producing factories. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and for me, Jared Blumenfeld, go need to mission pie while you still can, because it is so good. It's so good.